Fellowship Bible Church was started by uh, very missional, missions-minded people uh, from the very beginning. And so missions and outreach has remained a part of the DNA of FBC all these years. And uh, initially, uh, the church pretty much had a traditional type of missions program. Uh, Mark always refers to it as a map and a budget, where they were interviewing missionaries from parachurch organizations to decide who they wanted to support to do missions on the behalf of the church. And in the mid-90s, God began the process of transitioning uh, FBC's missions program from that type of traditional missions to uh, a missions program where we as a church are, are directly involved in carrying out our own involvement in global missions. And, and he did that by bringing us into contact with uh, three main national pastors at that time. One was in working in, uh, to plant churches in Mexico City, one in North India, and the other in, in Kenya. And from that time until now, God has just continued to expand and increase our direct involvement with already existing churches um, and, and their leadership uh, around the world. Right now, we're currently partnering with uh, churches in 17 different countries. This past year, in 2018, there were 15 different trips taken. Uh, there were many, many trips were taken where Scott and I did not go. Uh, Dennis McNutt took a youth group, uh, youth team to uh, India in June where they went to the remote mountains of India. John Morrison went in November to Guadalajara, Mexico and shared at the family camp there. Um, Scott Newland, one of our elders, he went to a location in Asia where he taught for a week. Um, and then Mike Thomas, another one of our elders, he went to Quito, Ecuador, where he taught uh, for uh, four or five days there with the church leaders of the church in Quito. If we look back over this year, uh, many, many, many trips, many, many different opportunities for people within our church to be able to be involved with going on a trip and being able to participate and to see what it is that God is doing through FBC missions. I'm just really excited about the, the strategy and, and the ministry that God has led us into here at FBC. I just see a, a, just a, a tremendous potential for impact. Missionaries come and go uh, for all different kinds of reasons. Um, sometimes it's health, sometimes it's finances, sometimes it's family issues, family matters. Kids grow up and it's time to leave the home and go to college and the family has to come back to help them get situated and transition and that type of thing. And so missionaries are constantly coming and going, but a mature functioning local church that's established in the faith in their cultural context isn't going to go anywhere. So a verse that I think really depicts um, this mission-mindedness that FBC has had and the way that God has been uh, faithfully, consistently using FBC around the world all these years is Isaiah 49.6. And it says, Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. William Carey is known as the father of modern missions. I'd like to think that um, he... Um, 
I was related to him in some form or fashion, not sure. He grew up in uh, great poverty in 18th century England. Uh, he was a cobbler by trade, a shoemaker, but he had a, a, a deep passion for the Lord and for sharing the good news of Jesus um, around the world. He had a real heart for foreign missions. And God allowed William Carey, in spite of his upbringing, in spite of all the circumstances of his life, God allowed William Carey to serve him in India for over 40 years as a missionary. In 1792, he wrote his famous Apologetic for Global Missions, and it was entitled, An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. Nice title. An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. Carey said this, It is the duty of those who are entrusted with the gospel to endeavor to make it known among all nations. It's the duty of those who are entrusted with the gospel to endeavor to make it known among all the nations. He argued that Christ's great commission in Matthew 28 and Mark 16, go into all the world and make disciples of Jesus Christ, that great commission didn't end when the disciples and the apostles of the first century left the scene that it continued on into his generation and the generations to come. He also relied heavily on the book of Isaiah uh, to lay out his apologetic for global missions. He was deeply affected by the book of Isaiah. In that same year, in 1792, he preached at the annual Baptist Association meeting there in England, and uh, he used as his text Isaiah chapter 54, verses 2 and 3. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings and spare not. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. Your descendants will possess nations. The gospel will go forth, he said. It'll impact the nations. You will spread out to the right, to the left. This was his call in 1792, this father of modern missions. And it was at that meeting that he shared this uh, profound message. It was really his motto for his global ministry. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. John Stott, another Christian statesman, though of the modern day, John Stott said this way, we must be global Christians with a global vision because God is a global God. Now, we've been studying through the book of Isaiah this whole last year. And we're continuing to study it, although for the next uh, several weeks we're actually going to take a break as we uh, are going to focus on a new, um, just uh, an emphasis for a few weeks based on our, our family ministry and our, our, our family life center, our home center back there um, on marriage matters. So over the next few weeks, uh, John Avery, our pastor of family ministry, and John Morrison, our pastor of counseling, 
are going to uh, uh, share some messages on that area of marriage. Uh, then we'll pick up again with the book of, uh, of Isaiah. But in our study of the book of Isaiah, over and over and over again, this idea of God being a global God, is, um, it's woven throughout that book. You see it all throughout the book of Isaiah. This heart for God, for the world, for the nations. Um, yet throughout the book of Isaiah, it's almost as if when, it, when we study uh, God's heart for the nations, it's almost like you see a schizophrenic God, just a kind of a bifurcated God. Because on the one hand, we'll see passages over and over again about God's judgment on the nations. Um, the first um, 39 chapters of, uh, of Isaiah, that was a key theme, the judgment of God on the nations. But then we also see God's grace and mercy for the nations. And that is woven, and you see that sp specifically in the uh, latter part of the book of Isaiah. So this theme of wrath, this theme of God's grace and mercy, two aspects of God's character that are manifested in the book of Isaiah. In the first part of the book of Isaiah, I'm going to jar your memory a little bit, there's a section in Isaiah, uh, chapters 13 through 23, these 11 chapters that focus on judgment on nations, and there's a whole list of nations given in those chapters. God's judgment against the Babylonians and against the Assyrians and the Philist, uh, Philistia and the Moabites and so on and so forth. And for 11 chapters, over and over and over again, God is warning the nations judgment is going to come. Whether it's from the east to the west, the north and the south, everywhere in between, all nations are going to stand accountable to God because they have rebelled against him. He's going to call him into account. God rules the nations. He rules their destiny. Now, this was particularly important in the book of Isaiah because Isaiah is writing to people who want to um, find their support or find their safety and security in other nations. They weren't looking to God. And so as he's writing this, Isaiah is trying to communicate, why would you trust in other nations? Why would you pin your hopes on some type of alliances with other nations when God is going to judge those nations? God is supreme over everything. Put your trust in God. In the end of that, that 11 chapter judgment section, 13 through 23, we come to chapter 24, um, God in no uncertain terms tells about this coming judgment. In fact, it's called the Apocalypse of Isaiah. Let me just read a couple verses from chapter 24. Behold, verse 1, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants. Verse 3 says, the earth will be completely laid waste and despoiled, completely despoiled, for the Lord has spoken his word, and the earth mourns and withers, the world fades and withers, the exalted of the people of the earth will fade away. The apocalypse is coming. And then 10 chapters later, in chapter 34, he reiterates this message. In verses 1 and 2, or, uh, he says this, Draw near, O nations, to hear, and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains hear, the world and all that springs from it. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations. 
His wrath against all their armies, He has utterly destroyed them. He's given them over to slaughter. Now, if you take these passages literally, at face value as they're written, chapter 24, verse 3, that the earth will be completely laid waste, completely come under judgment of God. If you take chapter 34, literally, that the Lord's indignation against all the nations, you look over at world history and when, when, when did this take place? And you have to conclude, if you take this literally, that it hasn't happened yet, that there's yet something coming in God's plan for the ages and for the nations that is yet to happen, that God's judgment is going to come against the nations of the world and hold the nations of the world to account for their sin and rebellion against God. There's a judgment coming. Jesus had warned about that. A day is coming of great tribulation, he says. Now, in contrast to that message that is woven throughout the book of Isaiah, is this other message of grace and mercy, of God's compassion for the nations. And so, take your Bibles just for a second and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 19. And I want to... um, I want to look at a a passage that is quite remarkable. Uh, We really didn't go over this passage this past year in our study, but I just want to read it. Isaiah chapter 19, starting in verse 19. Now again, it's a future day that he's looking at. And it says in verse 19, in that day... There will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near its border, and it will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a champion, and he will deliver them. Now, did you get that? He's talking to whom? Egypt, of all, of all the people. Verse 21 says, Thus the Lord will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. And they will even worship with sacrifice and offering, and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will respond to them and will heal them. This, you know, the the people that are reading this in the 8th century B.C., as Isaiah is writing this, the audience, the original audience, they're saying, oh, wait, wait, that must have been a typo. You must mean Israel. Egypt? Now, it even gets more bizarre if you look at verse 23. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Now, I, look, Isaiah must have been smoking some bad dope here. I'm sure these people were thinking that. I mean, here is Judah in the middle, Jerusalem, God's chosen people, who were afraid of the Assyrians who were coming down to destroy them, trying to make an alliance with the evil Egyptians to the south, who the Assyrians hated. This was a world in turmoil. This is geopolitical intrigue. And yet there's a day coming 
when Egypt will worship God, there will be a highway, although a clear path to the Assyrians, and they'll all kind of get together, kumbaya, and, uh, and worship together. And, and then it continues even more bizarrely in verse 24. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria. Oh, now they're all going to come together, blessing in the midst of the earth. Whom the Lord of hosts has blessed and saying, blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Blessed are the Egyptians, blessed are the Assyrians, and Israel, all lumped together. You talk about world peace. Where in the world is Isaiah coming up with this? This just defies explanation, at least to the people he was originally writing this to. In that day, though something's going to come, God's going to pour out His grace, His mercy. He's going to send a Savior, it says. He's going to send a champion. And people are going to experience the salvation of the Lord. Now, again, throughout the book of Isaiah, this has been a key theme. So clear back even in the very beginning of the book, in chapter 2, we read, Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. And will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from, e from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And again, folks, if you take these passages at face value, just take them for what they say, take them literally. A day's coming when the nations are going to come up to Jerusalem and worship God. They're going to learn of Him. In our study over Advent uh, these weeks of, uh, of December, we read passages like chapter 42, verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, that's Israel, and as a light to the nations. God cares about the nations. Or the servant's song in chapter 49, he says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore the preserved ones of Israel? Yeah, that's too small of things. I've got a bigger plan, says God. I will also make you the servant of the Lord, the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth I will make you a light of the nations. Or you could go over to chapter 60, towards the end of the book. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. He's talking to the people, his chosen people, the people of Israel. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. And then verse 3, nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. God is saying, I'm going to do a work in the life of the Israelites, of my special people, the Jews, and the light is going to dawn upon them, the, the light of the Lord, and the nations will come to that light. Israel will proclaim the glory of God around the world, and the nations will be attracted to that light. Chapter 56, also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to the love and to love the, the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps 
from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Where did that come from? Remember Jesus saying that? All the stuff that was going on in the temple? And he, he says, you're making this house of God into a den of thieves. God desires it to be a place of prayer, a house of prayer for all the peoples. This is coming right out of Isaiah. God is a global God. There's no question about it. And that is such a key theme throughout the book of Isaiah, over and over and over again. God's heartbeat is for the peoples of the world. He wants to be a light to the world. His salvation to spread to the ends of the earth. His grace and mercy reaching that far. Now take your Bibles into the New Testament. Just roll quickly here for a moment in Acts chapter 13. As Paul the Apostle is on his missionary journeys. Acts chapter 13. And his first missionary journey. And uh, start at verse 44. Acts chapter 13, verse 44. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. This is in the, the Gentile regions of the Roman Empire. But when the Jews, verse 45, saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul. They were blaspheming. In verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke up boldly. And they said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're now turning to the Gentiles. In verse 47, he quotes the book of Isaiah. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard it, verse 48, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as have been appointed unto eternal life believed. This was Paul's mandate. And whether it was the Lord Jesus Christ in his great commissions, going to all the world, Jesus was echoing the heartbeat of Isaiah, or the apostle Paul and Barnabas and the early apostles, as they were spreading the gospel to the Gentile peoples of the Roman Empire, they were echoing the very heartbeat of the book of Isaiah. God is a global God. He has a concern, he has a heart for the nation, and he has a plan for that. Now, God has blessed Fellowship Bible Church. Um, from the very beginning, as we heard in the opening video, from the very beginning there was a, a desire to be uh, a globally-minded church. When this church was started, coming up almost 39 years ago, they were concerned about global missions. Throughout the years, we have increased our, our, and expanded our, our, our heart and our burden and our vision for missions. In fact, 20% of the offering that was taken just a few minutes ago, 20% of the take goes to global missions each week. It's a, we view it as a double tithe. Um, we are concerned about global missions. And this past year, we had many opportunities to um, go around the world. Many of you had that uh, 
opportunity. You were involved in some type of missions uh, outreach program here at Fellowship Bible Church. Uh, you got to see firsthand, witness firsthand what God is doing through this church to bring the light of the gospel around the world. That was 2018, and in this new year of 2019, nothing will change. Um, as we mentioned already, uh, as we prayed about, uh, Mike Thomas and Scott McManigal are right now in Guadalajara, Mexico. Um, Jim and Rachel Poole also are on our mission staff, and Joel and Rachel McManigal, who's just finished up training with uh, Ethnos 360, formerly New Tribes Missions. They're in Navajo country. Um, in 2019, we're going to continue this burden of the Lord to follow the heartbeat of Isaiah around the world. Now, our involvement in global missions is not kind of a, kind of a shoot-in-the-dark type thing, kind of a willy-nilly thing. It is, it, is, it is an involvement in global missions that has a strategy. So I want you to listen as... Um, we share a little bit more about the what and the why of, uh, of our global missions here. So with our involvement in, in global missions, we are partnering with churches. We're partnering with the church leaders, with the pastors, with the elders that are involved in that particular church, in that particular location, in that particular town or that particular community. God uses the church. He uses the church to uh, strengthen the faith of the believers, to reach out into the community, to evangelize the area, to show his love to the area and the community and the town where that church is located. God's purpose is to use the church to establish folks in the faith and to establish believers in their faith. We do that through spending the time with them, with going and visiting them, with uh, gathering, whether it be with five people or with 20 or with 60 people. We also bring people here to Winchester to spend time with them. So it's very, very much a relational um, missions ministry that we have here uh, at FBC Missions. It can also be described as like global discipleship. There's a four-stage progression to the relationship that we've identified in, in terms of, of working with each church. And that, the first stage of that progression, we call teacher-discipler. And it's very much where we are drawing alongside of the pastors and the church leaders of already existing churches, seeking to equip them with the, the content and the, uh, even the methodology for how to uh, effectively, progressively, foundationally unfold the whole Word of God for the church. Because the, the purpose is an established church. The Malawi group that we have where we have been going to uh, numerous times for a number of different years. They're a relatively new group. They're a group where we would consider them to be in the teacher-discipler role. We had our large uh, African regional conference there um, a number of months ago, and that's why we held it there. Jim, Cedric, and Scott took turns teaching through the Positioned in Christ lessons in the mornings. In the afternoons, um, I led the group of women, and we shared different things about uh, our struggles in our ministries. The very first day 
one woman stood up and shared that she had been afraid to go to sleep at night because she was afraid that she would go to sleep with unconfessed sin and would die and go to hell in her sleep. And so because of these teachings on positioned in Christ in the mornings, she had become convinced that she had secure salvation, that she wouldn't lose her salvation because of unconfessed sin. It was quite a testimony of how truth can affect these people and how she needed to hear that message. Even though she was the wife of a pastor, she still had wrong beliefs. And so this conference was really important for her to understand that foundational truth. The second stage then we call co-worker. And, and that's where they have really embraced the, the content of the teaching and the importance of un, progressively and foundationally unfolding it. And, and they are working to do that in the church. We actually don't have anybody in that particular stage right now because we have lots of groups that are in the consultant stage and in the peer stage. The third stage then we've identified as a consultant role. And it's where they, they have been unfolding the, the Word of God, focusing on the finished work of Christ uh, for a number of years with the church. Uh, they're doing a good job of establishing the church in the faith. The, the church is growing and maturing. We're seeing signs of maturity in the church. And so when you consider the uh, consultant stage, it would be uh, groups like the Pokot in uh, Kenya. It would be groups like uh, Wubuye in Kenya and other groups as well that are in the consultant stage. And then the last stage we've identified as the peer stage. And that's where they can turn around and any other pastors, any other churches that God brings them into, into contact with in, in their country, in their area, in their cultural context, they can turn around and do the exact same thing with pastors and other churches that we have been doing with them through the years. And, and if they never saw us again, they would be fine. When you consider the peer stage, then it would be the group like uh, Gopal in Nepal, where we were in March of this year. And he put on a conference uh, while we were there for different uh, areas, for different pastors, where he gathers the pastors together. He's teaching them. He's bringing people uh, in from India where he's putting on conferences for pastors in his area. Jim and I and, and our whole missions committee, it's, it's our prayer that that as you uh, hear these testimonies and, and throughout the year continue to hear the great things that God is doing uh, through FBC and uh, in these churches and in these countries around the world that, that you will come away with a sense that God is, is truly using you, uh, each of you. Uh, in this process, because if it wasn't if it wasn't for us as a body, if it wasn't for FBC as a body, there would be no FBC Global Missions Program. John Stott, I think, was right uh, when he said we must be global Christians with a global vision, because God is a global God. And so as we begin a new year at Fellowship Bible Church, we do so with still that heart and that passion. In fact, God calls all of us to be a part of that work of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Proclaiming, as Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, the excellencies of Christ. And it starts 
right here at home. It starts right here um, in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, with our families. Uh, 2019 uh, can be a year where somebody in your sphere of influence, somebody that you know, somebody that today, if they were to die, they would spend a crisis eternity. But they're not going to die today. You know them. And you'll have the opportunity this year to share the good news of Jesus with. And so the challenge for us in a new year is to kind of re-envision this global heart of God and, and look even within our own context. Is there somebody that you know that needs Jesus? And could there be somebody this year we can share Jesus with? I want to also challenge us as a church family to continue to use our time and our, our talents and our treasures to continue that mission that is always on the front of our bulletin each week to prepare and deploy dependent disciples of Jesus Christ who change their world for Christ as they're being changed by Christ. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. William Carey has said that 200 some years ago. It's as, it's as profitable to hear it then as, as it is to hear it today. And by God's grace, we're going to continue to do that work in a new year. Let's pray. Our Father, we, um, we realize as we have celebrated this morning this communion service, we realize, Father, that you have given us um, a great gift, the gift of eternal life. Not something that we have earned, not something that we have deserved to receive, not, not something we have worked for, but just because you have freely bestowed it upon us, you have given us this free gift of eternal life by your grace, at great cost, secured, Father, by the work your Son did in paying for our sins. Lord, that's a message that the nations need to hear. The world needs to hear. I pray you'll continue to use this church, Father, in this coming year to be that light uh, around the world, but also, Father, right here at home, in the darkness in this community, may you use each of us who know you as our personal Savior, who have been redeemed by this precious blood of Jesus, that we can share that same message, Father, in our community. And we pray this simply for your grace, but to be obedient, Father, to your call that, the, that your salvation will go to the ends of the earth. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.